0: Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Raquel Faria. I am a doctor in internal medicine at the Centro Hospitalar Universitário do Porto. Today, I will be discussing challenging lupus cases with professors David Eisenberg and Zaire Amorá from the Lupus Academy Steering Committee. David, Zair, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Raquel. Let's dive on the first case. We will talk about the case of a young w- woman from mixed Caucasian, South Asian uh, origin who presented at the age of 18 years old with arthritis and air loss. The lab results revealed positive ANA in high titer, high titer DSTNA, positive anti-RNP and lupus anticoagulant. She was treated with steroids and azathioprine and remained stable for five years. At the age of 23 years old, she went to see a GP for seven cold blue fingers and five hours later she collapsed and several of her fingers were gangrenous. Lab confirmed microangiopathic analytic anemia with schizocytes and moderate low platelets and catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome was assumed. She was given uh, started with IV prostacycline. Steroids, cyclophosphamide, and epirin, and she improved. So let's just stop here for a bit. This happened in the nineties, not long after Ronald Ashard's uh, first description of CARBs, catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. David, this is this was your patient, so. You could find a specific trigger for this event do you want to comment what happened sure. would you do it differently that's almost 30 years going after this yeah.
1: Well, uh, the story actually was in a way both unfortunate and even more dramatic than you've made it out. What what happened was she went to see her general practitioner and she was the last patient on a Saturday morning clinic. And I suspect the doctor was very keen to get away to uh, do something else. And he looked at her fingers and said, well, just take some paracetamol. And as you've said, uh, she then went home, but then collapsed and was found with over this five hour period to develop gangrene in many fingers. And we've recently reviewed and actually just submitted for publication, a review of all the patients with CAPS that we've seen in a lupus cohort with around 850 patients. And we've seen eight in about 40 years. So it's about 1%. And I think that figure has been replicated in in other groups, too. And as you imply, Raquel, we've always looked very hard to see if there was a trigger. And in two or three cases, there was, and it was infection. So infection clearly can be a trigger in this situation. But frustratingly, we've looked quite hard at these other patients. It really wasn't very clear why this particular awful event had happened at that particular time. These patients invariably have phospholipid antibodies, and I suspect if you're triple positive, it's it's more likely. But there's not a huge literature on this topic. There was a, a report from China of a slightly larger number of patients one one piece of good news, just so I'll get the good news in first, uh, is that we look to see because all the patients have asked me over these years, you know, will this come back? You know, once, once it's once the, that episode will it return? And in the main, it doesn't seem to return. It's it's like a one-off sort of series of, of unfortunate uh, circumstances coming together as, as a one-off. It doesn't seem to come back, but I think the the, the main stays of treatment remain the same. Intensifies dilatation in those sort of patients. We often give prostacycline twenty four hours a day if necessary for weeks at a time. We have assumed that there may well be some uh, immunological component to this, and we've tended to use immunosuppression with these patients, and that would include things like steroids and cycloposphamide on occasions. We've used plasma exchange in case of factors within the circulation which are contributing to this. And then, of course, uh, something like heparin, warfarin, whatever, you're going to have to work with your hematology colleagues to to, to deal with this. But it is quite shocking, and we've seen a case quite recently, same sort of thing. A patient goes from being reasonably well, she was actually in hospital with, pneumonia which is one of these, these cases where there was a trigger and yeah, overnight yeah. she developed gangrene in, in multiple fingers multiple toes the back of her heel you know you know why why does this happen we still don't know I, I don't think we know
0: Zaire do you want to comment on your practice about caps uh, what do you do in the severe cases uh, do you choose any other kind of uh, medication
2: yes, I'd just like to have a comment on antibiotics It depends on the clinical context. So we give antibiotics when there are clinical manifestations, suggestive of infections, such as uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome or uh, multi-organ failure mimicking uh, septic shock. Keeping in mind that uh, during CAPS, inflammatory markers, CRP, are often very uh, elevated even in the absence of uh, infection, maybe because during caps, the, uh, there is a kind of cytokine uh, storm. storm, like uh, in a macrophage activating syndrome. So we also give antibiotics when the infectious risk is high, especially when we use uh, cyclophosphamide. Maybe one comment about the use of heparin versus uh, low molecular weight heparin. So low molecular weight heparin can be used for CAPS. I think it's a good treatment for CAPS, except in case of significant renal failure. So we use classic uh, heparin when there is a significant risk of uh, bleeding. I mean, when the platelet count is very low because the half-life of a uh, classic heparin is very short. So when we stop, you stop heparin. There is no increased risk of uh, of bleeding. When you
0: use um, immunosuppression in these cases, um, in pretty severe cases, do you use also plasmic change? Do you have any experience in using rituximab or even eculizumab? And this question is for both of you, in this particular catastrophic cases.
1: Uh, we, we've used all three at different times, but, but it, it's very much, um, as they say, it is flying by the seat of your pants, the the, the 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 evidence base isn't really there. There just aren't enough numbers of patients to say with any degree of confidence what, what is going to happen. I think I've always thought where there were very high levels of autoantibodies, such as antibodies to DNA, then it's reasonable to try and uh, get those down, and you can do that quite effectively with rituximab. We've done that. We've, we have also used plasma exchange. We work with these patients very closely with our hematology colleagues uh, you know, um, in, in my unit, we, we have some great colleagues who are interested in this, this area. Uh, but it's um, you know, there there are no there, there are no very clear cut guidelines in. It's not that I'm aware of. I don't know whether you know. <laughs> Zahir,
2: do you use rituximab? Um, no, not so often because, the, as the, David said, the data on the use of uh, monoclonal antibodies in caps, rituximab or eculizumab, are very scarce. So we use it as the last line of treatment when the CAPS is refractory. But uh, we don't know really if uh, this, is, uh, this treatment is effective. So, well, just one word about plasma exchange yes. or about uh, um, cyclophosphamide. We use cyclophosphamide when the CAPS is occurring during SLE. Once yes. it's a kind of primary CAPS, we don't use cyclophosphamide. We prefer uh, IVIG and we use plasma exchange when the CAPS is not responding to the first line of treatment. And the first line of treatment is anticoagulation, fully anticoagulation, plus high dose of steroids. But yes. when the, the patient hemodynamic is not stable, we don't use plasma exchange in case of heart failure, for example. Yes. Just
0: highlighting there's, uh uh, of course, uh, everyone that had one patient like this is, is always scared of coming the next. But when you say uh, if it doesn't respond to the first line, we're talking about days, right? Not yes. weeks, because this really kills people. Yes. But fortunately, she survived she and did. improved.
2: She did. And uh, Raquel, Raquel, just one word about the the, the, the evolution, the, the the course of caps. A good marker of a good prognosis of good outcome is the platelet count. When the platelet count is increasing, increasing. it's a a good point. So as David said, the treatment of CAPS is sequential. First line anticoagulation plus high dose of steroid, then IVIG or cyclophosphamide, and then plasma exchange or monoclonal antibodies.
0: Thank you for having that. She survived, yes. And eight years after that, when she was 31, it looks like she was stable for all these long. At 31, she presented with heavy proteinuria, and the kidney biopsy revealed class four nephritis. She was given IV cyclophosphamide with the NIH protocol, and for the following six years, between 32 and 38, she was treated with steroids and azathioprine. Two years after stopping immunosuppressant. At 40, she had a renal relapse. Few glomeruli were were in the biopsy, but still active nephritis, which improved uh, with steroids and azathioprine. David, if this happened now, what would you prefer? Would you still do a cyclophosphamide? Would you have any different option?
1: Okay, so just to, I will answer that question, but I just want to make a couple of points because this is actually quite an interesting his, part of the history. So she developed her nephritis 13 years after the diagnosis, and that's pretty unusual, actually. Uh, we've been looking at this in, in our group of patients, and in my experience, and I'll be interested to hear what so his experience has been, If you're gonna get lupus nephritis, you tend to get it in the first three to five years. So it's very unusual for it to start more than 10 years after the diagnosis, but she was one of those patients, 13 years in. Now, the other point that I wanna make that is, I think, very important is, I'm often asked, what are the the causes of renal failure in patients? And undoubtedly, for me, the number one cause is failure to take the medication. And the number two reason is failure to take the medication. And the number three reason is the same. This patient was poorly compliant. I have to say that, and uh, she was very sweet about it. Uh, but she said, "I don't like steroids. You know, they changed the shape of my face." And so, how much treatment she was actually taking, I, I was always a little bit um, uh, hesitant to, uh, to to answer that. But for whatever reason, maybe she did take just about enough. She did manage to improve the first time and the second mm-hmm. time. And what would I do today? Well, there's two things that have changed. First of all, the introduction of mycophenolate has been a big plus. I, I think it's clearly more effective. Uh, than azathioprine, certainly for getting patients into remission and probably also for keeping them in remission. So that's a choice. Uh, And as you will know very well, Raquel, I've been very influenced by the work of Liz Lightstone in London Uh, who has used uh, rituximab at the time of diagnosis. Now, steroids were introduced uh, to to the world in the winter of 1948-49, and they became the treatment of of lupus and lupus nephritis in particular by the early 1950s. So until Liz Lightstone came along 10 years ago and said, you know, we could treat this without using any steroids, which was quite a remarkable thing, really. Uh, So um, rituximab does, I think, have a place both in the treatment of lupus nephritis where other things have failed. uh, But Liz has shown that you can actually at the time of diagnosis and these are biopsy probing cases not if or but or maybe these were the real things she gave them two shots of rituximab, followed by mycophenolate and uh, and hydroxychloroquine and in our unit we offer patients a choice we say you can have the conventional treatment which is steroids, and now mycophenolate and hydroxychloroquine, or we can give you, uh, Rituxo has been around 20 years plus now, we can give you Rituximab. We'll follow it up with either methotrexate or, or uh, sorry, mycophenolate or isothioprine. Pregnancy issues are are important here because you can't take mycophenolate during pregnancy. You can take isothioprine during pregnancy. But yes, mycophenolate now plays a much, much bigger role than it did uh, 25 years ago and didn't exist when, when this patient got sick.
0: Any comments, Saïr? What, what,
2: what would you do? Today. today. Yes,
0: today, today, of course.
2: If I had to treat the patient today, I, I would definitely give MMF and certainly add Belimumab. Just because we have to think on the long term when we treat patients with uh, lupus nephritis. So MMF plus Belimumab is a good option for me.
0: And for, fortunately, you do have MMF uh, dosing to monitor uh, compliance in your center. We don't have it uh, uh, spread. But in this uh, erratic compliant patient, do would you be concerned to give MMF without monitoring the levels? It's a,
2: it's a, it's a very good point. I think each time we have a... Uh, uh, The compliance issue when we manage the patient, we prefer to use IV treatment, mainly uh, cyclophosphamide during the induction phase. Keep in mind that when you use the the AUC of uh, mycophenolic acid, you don't really assess the compliance because you give MMF to the patient just before measuring the the levels of blood uh, MPA. So this is not a good uh, a good assessment of the compliance, but uh, the the issue as of a compliance raised by David is very important in SLE. So,
1: if, if, if the level comes back at zero, you you probably got a pretty good indication. Yes, yes, not yeah. taking the drug.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, if the trough level is zero, you're sure the patient is not taking the drug. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> So at the age of 41, one year after this, she went on holiday to the Democratic Republic of Congo and returned with heavy proteinuria, fever, and she felt unwell. She had a further renal biopsy, which showed the presence of tuberculosis. So... uh, I wasn't counting on that Uh, and I I,
1: I certainly wasn't.
0: (laughs) And I do have a lot of questions about this. Um, Do you think that she caught during an holiday, TB, or what happened during this holiday? Was it just the high point of what was going on before going on holiday? (laughs) Uh, What do you think, Zaid?
2: I, I, I don't think she, she, she got active tuberculosis during her travel to Congo because we know that active tuberculosis is often the reactivation of an often old primary infection yes. and mainly because of the treatment. So my hypothesis is that tuberculosis promoted by the treatment. As trigger the lupus flare, and we know that infections are uh, triggers of lupus flare. So this is an hypothesis, and the diagnosis, the final diagnosis, was <laughs> clearly surprising for me.
0: <laughs> That's David? It. Yeah. Um, not an easy patient, of course. And um, this uh, tubercular renal tuberculosis, of course, changes all the strategy for this patient after this and. What would you think that could just minimise this risk, and we, of course, we are talking about a patient that started in the late eighties, nineties at lupus. So, but what do you think that in the current practice would change these? What would be your approach to these patients?
1: So, the, the 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 story of TB and lupus is quite interesting and clearly highly variable um, in terms of the numbers of patients who get lupus patients who get TB. Uh, I've just seen a report coming out of Indonesia where the level is extraordinarily high. It's, it's I think about fifteen percent, a really remarkable much higher than we've seen. Our, our figures are much, much lower than that. I think that's one to 2% of, of our patients have, have uh, developed TB. So clearly, I think uh, the part of the world that you live in is very, very important. I think so it makes very important observations about reactivation and uh, infection triggering uh, lupus flare. I think that's, that's very important. Obviously, the, incense. good thing about TB is that you could treat it, you could do something about it. Uh, and we did, she, she had the full uh, anti-TB therapy for a couple of years and she made a very, very good recovery. Uh, I think you have to be mindful of the fact that lupus patients are going to be more susceptible to all sorts of infections. Uh, and that depends partly because of the drugs that we treat them with, the immunosuppressants in particular, and the, the disease itself is probably, lends itself to, to encouraging infection. Uh, and I think, um, uh, TB has been a, a foe of, of, of mankind for thousands of years uh, and we we do well to remember that it's there and it's around and it's certainly not been conquered. Uh, so we, we have to sort of be mindful of it. Uh, and I think it's it's one of those things that you just have to have at the back of your mind when a patient re- represents with a slightly odd set of symptoms or something that doesn't quite add up, doesn't quite make sense, uh, that TB is a possibility. And I think the most important thing is to remember to think about it and to look for it.
0: Yes. And we know now that you share with us before the the podcast that she this patient unfortunately died from COVID. Um,
1: yes, it's, it's it's very interesting. I I'm sure like the two of you as well. I often be asked, well, what what you know, did a lot of patients lupus patients die with COVID, and in fact they didn't in our experience. And I think there was a very simple pragmatic reason for that. Uh, virtually all of our lupus patients hid away. They stayed home. They did not go out. They didn't want to come to the hospital. And in fact, uh, about two months into the pandemic, we had a shocking period in about two weeks with six acute lupus admissions, nothing to do with COVID, everything to do with active disease, active lupus. Their patients did not want to come to the hospital because they were worried about getting COVID Because. Our hospital like yours too had hundreds hundreds yes. of patients of Covid and many dying of course uh, and and so the numbers of lupus patients in our group who died of Covid is very small actually I think it's around a half a dozen maybe some something like that only uh, and I'm sure it's just because they, they they stayed clear until the vaccinations came in and then it became sort of safe to go out again but it was it was tragic she was one of the ones that sadly did die of Covid.
0: So pretty difficult case okay. with lots of Things going on and having to have a full mind, hope sure. and yeah, mind to, to manage it. So let's see if the second case is going to be as difficult as this. <laughs> uh, a 40 years old African female was referred for fatigue, weight loss. She lost five kilos during the last month, fever 39, and right paralumbar pain. The physical ex- exam displayed bilateral rash there is there was no joint pain and the labs revealed pancytopenia anemia with 8.2 leukopenia with 2000 neutrophils under 1000 a, a lymphocytes 840 platelets just above 100 and creatinine was 47 millimoles per liter the, the liver enzymes ISAT and LAT were eight times the upper normal limit. Total bilirubin was 12. albuminemia 2.3. And C, uh, uh, the C-reactive protein was pretty high, 177. Prococetamine was also high. Fasting triglycerides were in the two times upper normal limit with normal fibrinogen. And she also had positive ANA, eye titer, positive TSTNA, low C3, and this doesn't look good. The urine cultures were negative. She also had high proteinuria with 2.5 grams on a day. And the blood cultures were also negative. She did a kidney biopsy that showed lupus nephritis class three and the torical abdominal pelvic CT scan showed polyadenopathy, right and left, supraclavicular, axillary, mediastinal lymph nodes, and there's the point, an abscess of the right psoas. It was aspirated, uh, the abscess, and it displayed numerous sericea coli. So the patient was diagnosed with concomitant lupus flare with constitutional involvement, rash, and lupus nephritis, and the right abscess of the psoas. Zaire, this, this was your patient and she was severely infected and with a severe lupus flare. Comments on this, how are you going to treat a patient that has both lupus flare and severe infection?
2: Um, In this case, the patient had uh, normal kidney function. This is very important because it means that you can wait before starting the immunosuppressive treatment. When I say wait, I mean two weeks, three weeks, just the time to control the infection, and this is exactly what we did. And we started with a wide-spectrum antibiotics during two weeks. It's quite difficult to treat an abscess. Sometimes the, the... The antibiotics are not effective, but in this case, they were. And when we were sure that the the abscess was controlled, we had decided to treat the patient with with, uh, steroids plus immunosuppressant and since the patient was uh, of Afro-American origin. She had no compliance issue in her history. We gave her uh, MMF. MMF, steroids, plus
1: antibiotics. So, so here, could I ask, would, any idea why she developed the abscess in the psoas? Had she any trauma or any, no, any obvious reason why it was there? No, 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 no. It was amazing,
2: um, isn't it? At the beginning, the first hypothesis was TB abscess, because in the psoas, yeah. it's... Yeah. Uh, it's yes. <laughs> so yeah. We were surprised because it was uh, a bacteria and... Yeah. Uh, It was, it was surprising,
0: so. Yeah. So, and it looked like a pretty simple uh, bacteria that would be easily treated. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, she started on IV amoxicillin for 10 days and on hydroxychloroquine just to give her space to treat infection before immunosuppression. But that didn't went pretty well. And on the 10th day of the antibiotics, the rash was better uh, the CT scan showed healing of the right abscess, but the fever returned and she was dyspneic and confused. And the labs were not good also. So worsened cytopenias, higher CRP, higher liver enzymes values, blood and urine cultures were negative and she had high procalcitonin. Fibrinogen was in the higher normal uh, range, triglycerides were high, and uh, ferritin was 5070 82. so high. And you are already thinking that this could be uh, macrophagic activation syndrome or hemophagocytic uh, uh, syndrome, as we're going to talk about it as HLH from now. And the bone marrow examination confirmed there were hemophagocytosis there. And if you calculate the H score at this point, um, it was, uh, high with high probability of having, uh, hemophagocytic syndrome complicating this, this infection. The H score of centered one is used for adults to calculate probability. It was not Quite validated with um, patients that had uh, mutations or or something like that, but is the only tool we do have on the current days to approach HLH in adults. So we kind of use it to to know if the patients have high probability of having HLH just before the the bone marrow. So. Um, David, this is a severe complication of lupus and it's not quite frequent.
1: Um, yes, and
0: it, it can happen during not controlled infection and even more when you have an immunological disease um, on the background, and if it's not controlled. Um I think in my mind at least, it puts me on the hypothesis if these patients should be treated differently. Um, to the infection and the disease activity from the beginning? Or uh, would it, if we were more aggressive on on the beginning of the infection, knowing that she has a lupus flare, would it change? What is your experience? What what do you think about it?
1: Okay, so firstly, perspective I think is important. This is a rare complication of lupus. Again, we've, we've just had uh, quite by chance, as you know, uh, Raquel, I work very closely with my colleague Jess Manson, who's quite an expert on this area. And so we looked at our, at our cohort 850 patients, we found six or seven patients. It's again, it's about 1% or just 1%, under 1%. So, this is not a common complication. So, the vast majority of patients with lupus who get infections will not go on to develop this. Uh, and just as a slight side issue, if you see a patient with HLH and there is no overt uh, cause, as is evident here, you have to know, as I'm sure, you know, you have to look very, very hard for underlying malignancy, and, and very often, uh, hard to define lymphomas can can be uh, can be lurking, and have to be sought quite hard on occasions. So, in these sorts of patients, um, it, it's rare, uh, but again, it's one of those things you have to be mindful of the possibility, uh, and obviously, measuring the ferritin level is is, is very helpful here. Uh, and in in therapeutic terms, it, in fact, I think the patient was really was. Uh, about to get was getting steroids. We tend to use IVIG as well as, as part of the first phase of immediate treatment. Uh, second phase for us will be an uh, I have no personal experience, but uh, I know uh, Jess Manson does and I think you do too of uh, mm. top aside. Um, so that's the general sequence that we've employed, but I, I'd be fascinated to hear what Zaheer did with his patient.
0: Yes I, what do you think about it? Knowing what happened, would you have changed from the beginning?
2: Yes, of course, I would have certainly started immunosuppressant earlier. Um, if we look at macrophage activation syndrome during SLE, we, we have published a series of, uh, it was a multicentric French series of uh, 100 cases of macrophage activation syndrome during SLE. And 40% of the patients had documented associated infections. Yes. Two thirds of the patients had ABV, ABV yes. infection. The most common other viral infection was CMV, cytomegalovirus. Mm-hmm. And other patients had bacterial infections due to pyogens and also to mycobacteria, tuberculosis, mm-hmm. but also other mycobacteria. And last, when you uh, have MIS during SLE, you should always try to rule out lymphoma. Lymphoma yes. is a complication of SLE and can also trigger um, MIS. Regarding the treatment in SLE, we we often use IV cyclophosphamide because it allows the control of macrophage activation syndrome plus lupus flare. This is the first option for us and in our series it was uh, quite uh, effective. The second option is uh, the one used by uh, our uh, hematologist colleague and is etoposide. Etoposide. It works very well in EMA-ACE in general. We don't use rituximab. We don't use rituximab and we have no experience with uh, uh, anakinra or tocilizumab. So I, th- I think these drugs have been used mostly for MIS during juvenile arthritis. Yes. One, one more comment about uh, um, MIS during lupus. It's rare, as uh, David said, but it's more frequent in childhood onset lupus. Yeah. So it's kind,
0: kind kind of different. Um, we, we also found that, um, in, uh, HLH, AMAS, both in lupus and other, uh, rheumatologic situations, that probably it's, it can happen that we have more than one infectious trigger. So, um, we do tend to exclude, uh, active EBV even if when we have another infectious trigger and I think that what you said before uh, for this patient could not be excluded at this point she could also have TB on that abscess and other infection and it's not easy to to have TB TB often appears in hlh whatever the cause the the immunological cause and with other and as and we really need to be thorough in the other infections exclusion and not think okay she has I call it equally we, we, we we're not going to find another infectious it, it, we really need to be thorough and I I just wanted to comment the Kimra so we are using more and more but it's not a treat. It's not treatment for the cause or the infection. We just use it to save the patient and have patient while we are trying to figure out what is going on beneath it. So, anakinra is very good, very good to support the patient from dysfunctions and lowering the the, cyto- the cytokine storm but it doesn't treat the underground so you when you start anakinra you can't just sit and say okay now you're treating no, you you just need to go through all the rest of it you are just keeping the, the patients alive for the rest of it so these were both really difficult uh, and highly little clinical situations that fortunately occurs rarely, rarely in lupus. And uh, when we do have one patient like this, both the first one and the second one, we really need to get all the help when we can and we tend to discuss it with several other specialties. And even uh, you two both know that when we have a difficult case like this, we just email to know your, your yes. opinion. So we really need to have a network to discuss difficult cases. David and Zaire, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights to our listeners. We hope these discussions have helped you uh, gaining more uh, of an understanding of lupus. Do send us feedback on cases you would like us to discuss in the future. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a review, which will really help us in reaching as many of your colleagues as possible around the world. Join us again next time.